0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is March the 3rd, 2021, and some of the issues that are in the news today are truly perennial. They don't seem to go away. And perhaps the issue that dominates media more than anything else over the last few years is the issue of racism and colonialism. Just looking at the headlines today, the British city of Bristol is calling for a parliamentary inquiry on slavery reparations. Bristol, of course, was the port city where many of the uh, African slaves, or the the Africans sold into slavery in the United States, uh, were shipped from the United Kingdom. Uh, We have more and more stories in the US about these so-called proud boys who are essentially white, racist, perhaps neo-Nazi organization, very much involved in the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C. And the culture wars go on. Uh, This week, uh, there is a great debate in the United States about whether we should be, uh, shall we say, censoring books by Dr. Seuss, which, which touch on some, for some people at least, troubling racial themes. So, is racism and colonialism ubiquitous my guest today is is one of the most uh distinguished and erudite thinkers on uh race and racism and the history of colonialism in the west he is the author of a really interesting new book the new age of empire how racism and colonialism still rule the world his name is Kayindi Andrews, he's a British academic and writer. Uh, Kayindi, uh, have I uh, pronounced your name correctly? Yes, yeah, that's one of the best ways. Believe me, I, I'm, I'm impressed Kayindi. with so, uh, Kayindi, is Kayindi, uh, you seem to suggest in your new book, The New Age of Empire, how racism and colonialism still rule the world. Is racism and colonialism, are these the two keys to making sense of everything, economic, cultural,
1: political, in the contemporary age? Yeah, I mean, what really is the defining feature of the West is racism, is white supremacy. And if, what the book tries to do is trace it back to the emergence of what we have now, which really is uh, Columbus sells the ocean blue, goes the wrong way and finds the Americas. And that kind of unlocks the everything else that happens afterwards is unlocked by the Industrial Revolution, um which is but you can't have any of those things without the genocide in the americas without slavery of africans uh without colonialism so really white supremacy the idea that black and brown people can be um oppressed for their resources and labor that that really is what makes the west the west
0: you write about this in the introduction you call you you suggest that it's a myth that the west was founded on the three great revolutions of science, industry, and politics. And you write, instead, we need to trace how genocide, slavery, and colonialism are the key foundation stones upon which the West was built. The legacies of each of these remain present today, shaping both wealth and inequality in the hierarchy of white supremacy. Um, A lot of people are going to be troubled by that. Kayindi, you know that. You are a frequent guest on talk shows. A lot of people um, are deeply offended by this idea that it's essentially, whether you like it or not as a white person, uh, we are all bound up in the oppression of black and brown people. What would you say to those whites who say, well, it's nothing to do with me. It's not my responsibility. I'm not racist. I haven't played a role in this. Indeed, Perhaps in America, my family came to America poor. They were part of a working class from
1: Europe or or Ireland or somewhere like that. Because the uncomfortable reality is that whether you were directly involved in slavery, uh, we benefit from it. And again, this isn't just for white people. I benefit from it as well. I'm a professor. I I get get paid more than the vast majority of people in the world. And the, the reality is that if you actually look at what is it that made the world, and Also, this isn't past, so this is the same logic today. How are we having this conversation over the Internet, thousands of miles um, with broadcasting live? We're doing this uh, because technology, which the resources are literally stolen out of the African continent. Uh, they're put together by sweatshop labor in China, and then we can have this all of this technology. So Even today, it's not like this is something in the past. That same logic that you can exploit black and brown life and labor for us here in the West to have um to have money and wealth that's still there so it's an uncomfortable truth but it's just the reality of what makes this society
0: well most truths Kai, and they are uncomfortable which is why we need writers and critics like you to uncover them uh this book you suggest was was triggered by um um a very viral video that you launched on the the guardian the english newspaper website when you say the west was built on racism it's time we face that you suggest that technology itself is built on racism. Perhaps even YouTube. Um, perhaps even the, the the platform that you and I are talking on now. How does that work? How do we escape it? I mean, this
1: is the point. There really is no way to escape it um, because this is just how we've been. Gro- this is. Everything that we that we have today is based on that premise. So whether it is this technology, whether it is um, the food that you eat, right, whether it is whatever it is that you have is we have in the, the big issue in the world today is this massive imbalance of prosperity between the West and the rest. All of that is is built on the back of the labor and exploitation of, of black and brown people, right? Like a uh, nine million people die every year because of hunger, and they are poor because we are rich. And that's just the reality and so if we want to fix that and if we're serious about talking about racism we have to address that question um and there's no real way to go over it or under it you have to go go straight through
0: you're very explicit uh in the the way in which uh, the european countries and i assume you mean the west european countries built the foundations of this system and then they they passed it on to the United States, you talk about the colonial logic has always incorporated the ladder of Western supremacy and it got shifted, as you say, after the First or the Second World War where the United States became the center of empire. Is the United States today in 2021, on March 3rd, 2021, is it the heart of darkness? Is it a center of global racism and colonialism?
1: uh yeah the u.s does still remain the center i like that the heart of darkness um it's not a coincidence that the u.s is the world's biggest economy uh because what is the u.s the u.s is just europe on steroids right it's the place where millions of europeans were able to to go the kind of garden of eden of racism where you could just act in ways um which you could act them in europe but the big difference between like european racism and american racism is that in europe i'm from britain we exported our colonial violence all happened in the Caribbean. We still talk about slavery as being Caribbean slavery, West Indian slavery. Um, Whereas because the US is a settler colony, all that violence happens within the nation state, you know, there's millions of African Americans from slavery after slavery where you get like Jim Crow, um, Ku Klux Klan, you get, so you have this, America is a really good example of the extremes of racism, um, which is why the protests in the States spread around the world. Uh, but also America is the, the kind of logic of Western colonialism, right? Where once you've shifted away from this European, British Empire, French Empire, et cetera, it, it sits in the States. And that's where the money is. That's where the wealth is. And that's where all these institutions like the U, um, the UN, um, the International Monetary Fund, they're all based in the United States as well. That's not a, that's not a coincidence. This is now the new seat of Western Empire. So the, when you say
0: the UN and the, the IMF are... Uh, they're based in the United States, perhaps some of their headquarters are. Are you suggesting they're essentially American organizations?
1: Well, and they're essentially Western organizations, right? So where do they get their money from? They get their money uh, predominantly from the advanced economies. Uh, who decides what happens in them? Uh, predominantly, it's Western uh, economies as well. Think about something like the UN. Uh, and they're, and, they're, and the, what the U.S. is always the major funder. The U.S. is always the major voice. This is how imperialism works now. It isn't individual empires. It is one empire uh, that works through uh, the administration of the United States. Uh, The
0: subtitle of the book, uh, Kayinde, is How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. Is racism and colonialism, are they separate concepts? Are they they essentially impossible to disentangle?
1: Uh, I mean, you could have colonialism that wasn't racist, right? Colonialism is generally... Is there bad. an example of
0: that? Colonialism that wasn't racist? Can you think of
1: any historical examples? Well, I mean, certainly. You have um, China has colonies, right? I mean, Taiwan is, could be a colony of China. I, mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that's that's about racism, right?
0: So the um, Chinese
1: are, are, in contrast to the British or the Americans, they're not racist. Uh, no, no, at China, all. China's terrible. China's real. China, in fact, the big theme of the book is that China's kind of becoming the center of uh, western empire and actually has is doing many of the same things which which europe and america has done right um but in terms of the the actual colonies of this island now is that racism maybe not but when you talk about uh colonialism in the western context it is totally inseparable from racism because that's the whole purpose of it right that's the whole point of it uh, and that's why it exists when you say the point are you suggesting that
0: uh Sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth century West Europeans uh, took over Africa because they were racists, or because they wanted uh, the raw materials, or the, the the geostrategic power that went with seizing territories in Africa and other parts of the world.
1: Yeah, this is why they're combined, right? So it is about we want the labor, we want the resources, we want the stuff that's there. Um, but why are they able to do it? Why are they able to carry out the barbarity that we see? And I think sometimes we miss not sometimes we definitely miss the barbarity that was involved in building these empires. And um, that was possible because of racism, right? Because they didn't think that we were that we were people. So the urge to take isn't necessarily about racism. That's that's not a racist, urge particularly, but the way that the West has done that um by devaluing black and brown life and having this idea of white supremacy and that justifying the way that people are treated that is racism and that has been the way that colonialism empire has been built Kayinda, you've been involved in a
0: in in a pretty public spat with piers morgan certainly uh, not one of my favorite people <laughs> uh especially because he's an arsenal fan uh, you've been involved in a debate with him over of all people winston churchill I don't think you did compare Churchill with Hitler. I don't think that's fair. He says you did. Uh, Here's some images of you appearing on his show. We had uh, Ian Boroma, the uh, Dutch historian on the show, writing about the Churchill complex and this weird relationship between England and America. Does Churchill, in your mind, exemplify all the contradictions and paradoxes of white Western politicians who are vilified by many people outside Europe and heroized by others that you know we can argue till the cows come home about whether or not Churchill was a racist, but you seem to suggest that he exemplifies a certain kind of Western politician.
1: Is that fair? Um yeah I mean there is really no argument that Churchill was a racist. I mean listen to anything that Churchill says I mean Churchill was like a avowed racist. And it's actually interesting that the person um, who compares Winston Churchill to Hitler is Leo Amory, the Secretary of India at the time, who was definitely not an anti-racist, said that Churchill's views on Indians was very similar to Hitler's views on the Jews, right? I mean, this is at the time, this isn't looking back, this is actually saying, well, actually, what was he saying? Um, and if you look at things like the Bengal famine, etc., if you look at his role in Kenya and places like that, and, and Africa, um, if you look at his statements and pronouncements on eugenics, it's very clear that he's, he's a white supremacist. Uh, you you white have supremacist. a
0: section in the book on the Holocaust. Would you, Are you suggesting that and, and I don't want to get into this too much because it's not really the heart of your book or your argument. But do you think that Churchill was secretly rather sympathetic to the German elimination of the Jews? I
1: you know, I, that would be speculation, but he was certainly sympathetic to the underlying logic of it. So the underlying logic of the, and this is the, the big, a big part of the book, is this idea that um, the Holocaust and what the Nazis did wasn't an aberration. Right. I mean, this isn't something which is this is the way we typically think about the Holocaust. It's so this aberration these evil Nazis. Actually, it was based on the, this exact same logic we've seen. We've seen at that point for centuries, which was racial science, which was eugenics, which was you can scientifically say people are, are less than. And I mean, Churchill was a eugenicist. He totally believed this. Whether he believed this for Jews, I would have no idea. But the logic that then gets applied um, to Jews is the logic of empire. The difference is, is applied to people we think were, we would now assume would say are white. Perhaps this
0: could be your next book, Kayinda. I know that Churchill was the guy who invented the concept of the concentration camp during the Boer War, which is again another subject. Uh, one of the, the titles of your chapters in your book is I'm White, Therefore I Am. It's obviously a play on Descartes' Cartesian assumption about Western individualism. We had Joseph. Uh, Heinrich on the show, the weirdest people in the world, writing about how the West became peculiar and prosperous through education, industrialization, wealth, and democracy. Are you suggesting essentially that the Enlightenment was rooted in racism and that Heinrich is wrong and that, that, that the foundations of the Enlightenment, of Western
1: liberalism, of even democracy, is racism? 100 percent. I mean, I think the, the term I use in the book is that the Enlightenment is essentially white identity politics. I mean, you think about the Enlightenment thinkers; um, all of not even one of them, all of them, all had these very clear racial theories, racial hierarchies, the idea that um, Europe, uh, white pe- no, even Europe white people—not even Europe—white people were superior. Emmanuel uh, Kant, I focus on a lot in the book uh, because he's one of the key. Yeah, architects.
0: what's your what's your what's your uh, play on Kant? Uh, you have a ah. Uh, you
1: can't theory? be serious. <laughs>
0: right. I mean, have you read Kant seriously, though? I mean, he's a
1: pretty dense thinker. Uh, dense is a, is one way to put it. Yeah, I mean, look. Before the book, I know I knew about Kant, and I was, I, I assumed a lot of things. I read Kant for the book, and it's worse than I thought. The devil is in the detail. Kant is awful. I mean, Kant actually has instructions of how to best beat a Negro based on his bizarre. Um, theories about we have thick skin in our blood does it, it's 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 Kant's not just a racist. He's a, he's a, he's one of the most racist uh, thinkers you could find. Right? Um, so here,
0: uh, here's Cayende on Cayende uh, Andrews on the Enlightenment. You you say you write the, the Enlightenment emerged at a time when Europe had laid waste to much of the world through genocide and slavery, and was asserting its dominance through colonial expansion. The arrogance of its thinkers was only possible due to the violence of the first version of Western empire. The great thinkers, quote unquote, found themselves on top of the world as a result and theorized about their apparent supremacy. So you're suggesting that that all the Enlightenment thinkers, including what, Kant, Mill, everybody, they were all essentially uh, camouflaging their
1: racism in, in, in Enlightenment philosophy? I don't think it was that well camouflaged. Honestly, like, I haven't read a lot of it for this for the book. It's not that well camouflaged. And what if you think about um, why I say identity politics, the idea of the enlightenment, that knowledge spreads from Europe. But actually in 1492, when, you, when you know, Europe starts to expand, Europe isn't ahead of everywhere. Europe is actually behind basically everywhere. It's coming out of a dark age and Africa isn't certainly, Asia isn't certainly, the Americas aren't. And there's a reason why there's a gap from 1492 to the 18th century when you get the enlightenment, it's because the world literally has to be created. You have to, we have to enslave Africans. We have to kill the natives in the Americas. We have to start to colonize the Indians. And so that's what I mean by that. But the point you, you get Kant and Mill and all that, they're seeing the world at the top, right? Through what it, the barbarity that's been done. And then they're, they're theorizing their supremacy. And that's the problem. That violence can't be separated from the Enlightenment. And then and it the, gets
0: and I, and I use this word carefully, that these people were enslaved by some sort of... uh Scientific or philosophical discourse in the West that they couldn't escape this racism. Uh, I mean, this is the
1: thing. I mean, there were people who were arguing against at the time, so they could have escaped it. I mean, they certainly could have done. It. I, mean, I mean, there were the
0: some, some some Enlightenment thinkers were strongly against the institution of slavery.
1: You yeah, know, being against slavery isn't the same as being anti-racist. So even Kant comes out against slavery in the end, um, at the very end, um, and colonialism actually. But you know, it does it in a way that's essentially say it's essentially like when we say we should be nice to apes, like we shouldn't kill apes and we shouldn't poach them. We should let them live in their habitats and their savagery, but we should stay out of their affairs. I mean, that's essentially the framework of human rights you get from Immanuel Kant and the Enlightenment, which is the framework of human rights we have today, right? The United Nations that's supposed to look after global global inequality. The biggest thing in global inequality it really is racism. Africa is the poorest part of the world, the black part. Uh, the West is the richest part, the white part, and there's a hierarchy in between. So we have a global inequality which really can't be understood in any terms which aren't racial. But then the framework we have of rights completely ignores race and just talks about the right to life. I mean, that's the legacy of the Enlightenment. This, this is why we need to really shake ourselves out of it.
0: Well, I'm definitely going to think about the, the word Kantian in a very different way now uh, <laughs> uh, after, after this conversation. Uh, you mentioned the rise of the West. Uh, And you've also talked about China. You write in the book at the end about the rise of the East now as a major change in the global political and economic system. You suggest there's no doubt we're living in the Asian century and and China, of course, the heart of that. We had the Singapore-based historian and polemicist Kishore Mahubani on the the show uh, last year. He's kind of, in in some ways, I guess an Asian equivalent of you in his critique (laughs) of the West. You suggest, though, earlier that you don't see much of a difference between the Chinese and the and the, and the the Europeans and Americans when it comes to race. The Chinese are, are no more or less racist in this new age, this new Asian century.
1: No, I mean, what's happened is that China has, you know, Maoist China, communist China, the China that wanted to overturn and overthrow, that died a long time ago, in the 70s, 76. And China takes this Says, look, we're a poor country, we want it, we want to advance. How do we do that? They basically embed themselves into the West, right? China becomes the workshop of the world. Um, China produces most of our goods. We need China, like the idea that China's not afraid, we need China completely. But if you actually look at again the logic of that, why is it that China produces most of the things, goods for the world? It's because they have about 400 million people who live in desperate poverty you accept wages that we would never accept right which is they they're literally because you have some people in china benefiting from the exploitation of chinese workers that does not mean it's anti-racist or it's progressive the logic of sweatshops in china is racism that they can be exploited so you don't have to exploit us here and in the second part of that is where do you get the resources from for China to make everything they have to go to the same place that Europe went to which was Africa right and it's not a coincidence that since China uh, joined the world trade organization really joined the west in 2001 um, their trade with Africa is like literally gone up by 20 20 30 fold because what they're doing is they're doing exactly the same relationship as the the west has done extracting resources impoverishing Africa um, for their benefit so there's nothing new about China China is just playing the game of the west just playing it very well uh, at the end of the book, um, uh, you, you suggest
0: that we're on the the cliff edge of annihilation caused by what you call so-called Western civilization. Uh, you quote Malcolm X, it's the the ballot or the bullet, liberty or death, freedom for everyone, or freedom for nobody. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, KND, but there was a good there's a good movie new movie out one night in Miami. Uh, perhaps not quite as serious as your book, but still in its own way serious, The Meeting of Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke in Miami. I think it was in 1964 when uh, when Muhammad Ali first won the heavyweight championship of the world. Is Malcolm X the core theorist in, in, in your thinking? Is he uh, the thinker that has driven your argument here is uh you know malcolm x has obviously been 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 dead a long time but was he essentially right in the 60s particularly in his debate with martin luther king
1: um yeah malcolm is for me uh they absolutely fundamental I, I basically just stole most of what malcolm said and put it in academic academic terms and malcolm x is one of the most important intellectuals of the 20th century and really gets it right 50 years ago right uh where he says this society can no more provide freedom justice and equality for black people than a chicken can lay a duck egg it's just not meant to do it right really hit the nail on the head that integrating into a society which is based on racism isn't going to get you anywhere it's going to get us to here actually which is what he called second class citizenship where yeah you're going to have black professors you'll have a middle class but for the majority of black people if we look in the west if you look in the uk if you look in america if you look globally things haven't really improved all that much in the last in the last 50 years and that's the really reminder of this that it's the system is the problem and also really importantly for Malcolm it's a world system it's one of the things I wanted to do in the book was really look globally because a lot of the time we think like there's there'll be a book about British racism or a book about American racism but there really is no way to understand this without understanding this as a global system which we are all part of Andy, some people are going to be
0: watching this and say, well, what about Black Lives Matter? That shows things are changing. But at the beginning of your book, you give a rather dire warning about Black Lives Matter. You talk about it. You talk about this quote-unquote optimism uh, that we're all ready to face up to the realities of racism. Uh, but you suggest that we should approach the, the aftermath of Black Lives Matter with what you say extreme caution because it's been appropriated by companies like unilever and l'oreal um, uh, and, and and taken over by the the rebranders of of madison avenue has black lives matter changed anything or
1: is it part of the problem itself well i mean i think there's two things so i think black lives matter certainly seeing the the young people out in the street seeing the protests we're having a different level of discussion that we just weren't having um 10 years ago before black lives matter um but in the the book I did before this, which is really the seek the, this book, the new age of empire is really a prequel to back to black, which is about returning black radicalism for the 21st century. Um, there is, I do question actually, black lives matter is effectively the civil rights movement. It's a, it's quite a liberal idea that we can reform, that we can, um, you know, if we get the right people in place and we get the right policy in place, we can fix it, which is a problem, right? I mean, this, that's a dead end, which isn't taking us anywhere, but black lives matter has really infused young people and got people out. And it has to be a good thing on the other hand though you have what's happened in this after the summer which is people taking black lives matter for joke (laughs) let's be honest when you've got unilever and l'oreal changing the name of a skin lightening product uh taking the word fair out of it and rebranding it it's still a skin lightening product they're still selling it to bleach out the color of your skin it's just got a new brand i mean that shows you the emptiness uh of the gestures that we're having so the way that people are taking black lives matter and that's that that that's definitely not progress the black squares the that's kneeling during the anthem or the premier league football i mean that's that's just symbolic tokenism which is only going to make the problem worse
0: okay and we we've had a lot of people on the show talking about um a post-racial politics or trying to imagine a post-racial politics from the left um we had sarah horowitz these are all americans talking about uh creating a new kind of labor union for the 21st century. We had Thomas Frank in defense of populism reminding American writers that there was a time in the 19th century where black and white workers were united in their hostility to capitalism. We had Michael Lind his new book, The New Class War, um, is also, like uh, Horowitz and Frank, talking about the need to revitalize multi-ethnic, multi-racial unions You talk a little bit about Marx in the book, but the hostility of your book is race and racism and colonialism rather than capitalism. Is there a future, Kayinde, for a multiracial, multi-ethnic union of different peoples, of different skins against capitalism itself? Or is this for you simply
1: an illusion, a delusion, part of the problem itself? I think the idea that that's what we need to first focus on is part of the problem so the issue isn't do we all hold hands and get together and uh and see this and see the thing in the same in the same way this is the problem with marxism right and marx is also an enlightenment thinker right the idea that there is this one percent versus a 99 percent that's complete nonsense right if you're in the west you are we live in a completely and i say we because it's not just not just white people in the West now, right? We live in a completely different world to the vast majority of people. The poorest person in the West is in the top 80% of people on the planet. Like a child dies every 10 seconds because they haven't got access to food. That doesn't happen here, right? So what the problem I have with the left is that so many of those debates and discussions are really about when we're in the West, how do we share the spoils of empire better? You know, Can we have uh, universal basic income now? Or can we have social democracy now? That's not dealing with racism. My family came from Jamaica to the UK when Britain was a social democracy, right? A very well-functioning social democracy. It was also extraordinarily racist, and the conditions they lived in, in the Caribbean were, again, um, deeply problematic. So, unfortunately, the, the left hasn't got it, really hasn't got it. The left has to come to terms with the fact that capitalism is racism, and you can't get past that, and you have to deal with that um, if we're saying how we're going to move forward as a collective. So, Kayende, the left hasn't
0: got it. Who has got it? Is there anyone apart from yourself and a dead Malcolm X?
1: <laughs> no, certainly. I there mean, there obviously, Malcolm, but you have got many, many, many movements. There's a whole history of radical movements, not just Black radical movements either. Uh, you have Chicano movement in America in particular. You have the Third World movement. In fact, when you're talking about a multiracial uh, politics, the Third World movement. Um, that's very diverse. In fact, black radicalism is very diverse. It doesn't always include uh, white people, but most of the world ain't white people. So we've had lots of like Bandung in 55. There has been this kind of third world. Well, that was 50
0: years ago. So, so finally, Kayende, uh, give me a couple of things that, that, that people can do that we collectively, e- even if we can't really escape from our racist architecture, what, what can be done? in the next 10, 15, 20 years to, to to challenge this new age of empire, to do away with racism and colonialism,
1: which none of us like. Nobody wants that. Um, yeah, so this, the first thing is really to understand the scale of the problem. I'm not going to lie, the new age of empire is not a you're going to find a solution to the problem. Here. It's really not the purpose of it. It is a prequel to Back to Black, which is more of the What is Black Revolution, what does that look like? Um, this book is about saying actually you need to firstly understand the scale of the problem. You need to be uncomfortable. Because I'm reading lots of books about racism and they end like with a happy, cheery, let's all hand hold hands. No, that's if you feel good after reading a book about racism you missed you kind of missed the point right so no, wow, or right? they're all scripted by unilever and l'oreal right <laughs> i wouldn't go that far but they certainly they certainly we need to be uncomfortable so i think embracing discomfort is a, is a is a is a first thing second thing then is looking long right so we always look quickly racism isn't something it's a matter of life and death it's a structural problem you cannot solve it in one year two years three years four years you have to be saying what are we doing in 50 years because 50 years ago, when Malcolm was around, at the, time, at the time I'm kind of romanticizing, when they were talking about revolution, we're going to end the West, we're going to have Pan-Africanism or communism, that was a real thing. It was not was not set in stone that this would be what, what, where we end up, right? Um, and so 50 years from now, if we start to think differently and say, well, actually, let's build different alternatives, let's really build different organizations, let's think away from just how do we deal with Democrats and Republicans, let's think about complete alternatives. And in 50 years time, we can be having a conversation that says we can have something new because all empires fall. Like this, all empires fall and the West is only a blip in human history. The question is, when this falls, uh, are we going to be prepared to build something else or will we fall into chaos, which is equally likely, unfortunately?
0: Uh, One thing, of course, Kainde, we haven't talked about is patriarchy and the role of men. Uh, You talk about that quite a lot in the book. We had Martha Jones, the uh, author of a wonderful book, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote and Resisted uh, and Insisted on Equality for All the Rise of uh, the Black uh, activist po- Politician, uh, Political Activists in the United States. Is that the model? Black African-American women, are they the, the, the paradigm of how it can indeed be done?
1: Well, I think I think one of the things we need to look back historically is that black women have always been involved in all of these mobilizations, whether it be the Universal Negro Improvement Association, whether it be the Black Power Movement, the Black Panther Party. Um, The black women have not not been there, so I think that's really important whether it be rebellions, whether it be Pan-Africanism, black women have always have always been there and certainly a future that involves black women, that involves, um, that is intersectional, uh, is absolutely essential. But black women have always been there. It's not a new thing for black women to be there. Um, But it is about saying, how do we build a movement where everybody uh, can feel part of it?
0: Well, if you don't like, uh, if you don't like Piers Morgan, um, then you're gonna love Caínde uh, Andrews, The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still Rule the World. I, I didn't agree with all of it. I'm not sure Kayinde actually agrees with all of it. But it's, <laughs>
1: uh, I do really do. I honestly do.
0: Uh, well, it's an extremely provocative and erudite read, and it's actually it's not academic. Uh, uh, it's it's as as readable as Malcolm X, which I think gives it its vitality and success. Kayende, you're stuck in Birmingham, England, which is a really miserable place to be at the best <laughs> of times um, uh, during these weird times of COVID. In addition to your book, what else should people be reading?
1: Um, I said there's loads of books you can read. I think there's two. If I was going to pick out two, obviously you won't be surprised. Uh, Malcolm X. Please, Malcolm. So I mean how would you how, how could it not be i really i would suggest malcolm X speaks because the best place to go for malcolm isn't the autobiography which is okay it's actually the speeches the malcolm's speeches are honestly the ballot or the bullet everybody should read if you want to understand racism today uh read the ballot or the bullet actually listen to the ballot or the bullet because that's a, just the oral tradition of it's really important and the second book set the world on fire by keisha blaine speaking about black women uh this is actually a book about um black women being involved in the universal negro improvement association and the uh, movements that came after that uh, which was in the 20s i mean the unia was the largest black radical organization we ever had five million members 50 countries and it's a reminder that black women have always been have always been there. those are the two that pop, pop to mind but there's loads of good stuff coming out now um, as well there's also a book called 400 souls that just released by keisha blaine and ibram x Kendi, which is 80 um different african-american authors reflecting on 400 years since 1619 to, to 20,
0: 2019. So there's loads well, of things you can read. Cayenne Andrews, real uh, a real honour to have you uh, uh, on the show. Um, and uh, I love the fact that you've upset Piers Morgan. Um, so we'll have to have you, if you continue to upset him, we'll have you back on the show. Uh, I hope the next book will be about Churchill. Um, yeah. The next week's well. to psychologist and Whiteness, so that'll really, right. that'll really, get, that'll really get Piers Morgan will, We'll have to have you and, uh, and Piers Morgan on the show debating. I'll try and separate the two of you. Keep well. Keep amused in Birmingham, England, if you can, and we'll have you back on. Real pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lithub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.